This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. I think when we're talking about pain, you can basically confidently say that it's never just endo. You know, it's never just endo. There is always a multitude of other things going on. And if you don't address those other things, the patient won't get better. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. Pelvic pain impacts one in seven women, yet some reports indicate that 50% of these cases go undiagnosed. And in 2021, there was a report released that shared the annual total healthcare cost of chronic pelvic pain in women is about $2.8 billion in the United States with individual costs ranging from $17,000 to $21,000 per woman per year. So today, I bring back to you Dr. Peter Wright, who shared with us last year her perspective on pelvic pain, endometriosis, and trauma. And very quickly, that became my top performing all-time episode. So Dr. Wright is back with us today with her colleague, Dr. Thea Bowler, and we're going to discuss more about chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis, and trauma. So let's get into the discussion. So thank you so much for making time, especially on school drop-off day when school is just starting. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, Peta, you and I had such a great get-to-know-you call, and I think I shared with you that people just loved that discussion. And so I was like, we have to do this again and talk more about this because that was just an introduction. Um, so thank you again so much for making time out of your your busy schedules. So for those who didn't quite yet listen to that episode, and I hope they do after this discussion, um, why don't we start with introductions? So Thea, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I'm Thea. I'm a gynecologist working in Brisbane. I did some extra training once I had become a specialist in laparoscopic surgery and endometriosis surgery. And um, I guess that's where my passion for helping women with pelvic pain and endometriosis kind of started. Now I work in two different private practices, one um, with Peter um, and then another in the city. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Peter, what about you? So I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, um, fertility specialist, working mainly just in gynecology and fertility now. Um, since having my baby, stopped delivering um, other people's babies. We have a clinic that is just outside of Brisbane that is a real multidisciplinary clinic um, to support women through for all um, gynecological and, and women's health problems. But we have probably a particular focus on women with persistent pain and other things that kind of seem to be put in the too hard basket in normal kind of gynecology we seem to see a lot of women who are feeling really frustrated about you know treatments not working or being um, started on treatments that might have more side effects than benefits for them and they kind of feel just confused and at a loss Um, so we see lots of women who fit in that group and that's where my passion for, for, for seeing women with chronic pain and endometriosis comes from because the the story is far bigger than I think any of us have been led to believe and it's important to acknowledge that that for women because um, when we can see that then we can start to address all of the layers of the onion and, and women can actually start to get better and have control back over their lives. 
Absolutely. And I know when we spoke the first time, the analogy was the iceberg. And so mm. uh, agreed, whether it's an onion or an iceberg, there's many, many layers to this. And a lot of it, as with the iceberg analogy, it's it's hidden. Um, mm. And so I'm, I'm really excited to really dig deep into this and break down those layers. Okay, so we've talked about um, a series of questions that we wanted to go through today to really peel back um, all the layers of, of this very big onion of um, I would say endometriosis, but really it's pelvic pain. And so, um, you know, let's talk about the evidence where people think that endometriosis is the cause of pelvic pain. You know, is that a myth or fact? And, and what's really the evidence behind that? Um, well, I think that endometriosis can, women who have pain have been found to have endometriosis. But the thing is, the only, uh, I, I think, with and it's not just a problem with gynecology it's sort of a western medicine approach where we think of um, breaking the body down into very sort of reductionist little bits and um, so if, if someone presents with pain we presume that the problem is only in the area where they feel the pain and that's actually a very you know, that doesn't really fit, especially with chronic pain, with what we know now in modern pain science and how that actually works. So it's actually quite an old fashioned thing. But so traditionally, when women present with pain, pelvic pain, um, you know, the Western model looks in the pelvis. And so women started to be having operations, laparoscopies, so keyhole surgeries to look inside the pelvis and see what, what they found. And then they started to find um, these deposits of endometrial-like cells, so endometriosis, inside the pelvis. And then, you know, we obviously people who have... Um, pain even though we know that people who have pain who do have a laparoscopy probably 30 percent of those women don't have endometriosis lesions so you know um but we do know that endometriosis can be associated with pelvic pain but it's not always the case so it's not you know like if you have endometriosis we know i think i talked about it last time and thea has talked about in talks i've heard her give that there are studies where um they've looked in women's pelvises for um, to do a tubal ligation and found in some studies up to 44% of women who don't have pain have endometriosis lesions. So it's not always the case that having an endometriosis lesion equals pain and it's not always the case that having pain always equals endometriosis. Um, I think that there probably needs to be some other things that go on to cause pain in women and they're the things that I think are under addressed. So it's totally possible to have really even severe endometriosis and no pain and it's completely possible to have no endometriosis and severe pain. So it's absolutely not the, it's not the, the, the whole picture at all. Like it's such a paradox that we need to be looking elsewhere. Um, and also the other thing I would say is, and maybe Thea can speak more to this, but not all endometriosis is the same. I would say that a lot of women have um, deposits in the pelvis that might be the result of physio like physiological processes. We have periods, we bleed, um, and some of that blood in 100% of women, actually, almost, comes out through the fallopian tubes and can land in the pelvis. And that, that happens more frequently if you have heavier periods or more frequent periods. But if our immune system is is capable of clearing up those that debris, so to speak, and not overreact, because we think at the heart of it, you know, endometriosis that's severe is a disorder of immune system dysfunction and increased inflammation, then those little deposits shouldn't worry us. And in fact, studies have shown that um, the natural history of endometriosis is that about 70% of endometriosis that is found at laparoscopy either remains the same or like gets better when they've done a second look laparoscopy. So that kind of thought that endometriosis, if it's there always can just get worse and worse and worse and worse is not actually true for the vast majority of endometriosis. And there's a big difference between superficial endometriosis and deep endometriosis. Um, and maybe Thea can speak to that a little bit more, you know, and then still the correlation of pain isn't there. So that's why it's just we really need to mm. be looking in other places to think about, well, there might be endometriosis, but there's other causes for pain that are 
probably more important. Can I make one point of clarification? You'd mentioned that with the pain, it can be endometriosis, or it is, but couldn't there also be adenomyosis and a few others? Yeah, so I think, you know, there are these anatomical conditions that we know about, endometriosis and adenomyosis being the two that um, we believe can contribute to pelvic pain. But again, adenomyosis is very similar to endometriosis in that the correlation with pain isn't well established. So, and, and now that our ultrasounds are so good, you can pretty much see a degree of adenomyosis in anyone you do an ultrasound on. You know, there'll be, you know, mild changes suggestive of adenomyosis found, and these women will have no symptoms at all. And so I think adenomyosis probably goes hand in hand with endo in that, you know, if it is a very, very severe form of the disease, yes, the correlation with pain is probably greater, but still not 100%. Um, but certainly it's something that we see incredibly commonly and the vast majority of these people or, or a huge proportion of people who have the condition probably have no pain. It's that thinking of what is actually normal in women's bodies. And I don't think, as we know, because we haven't really done very much research on women's bodies, we probably haven't said what's normal, you know. And some of this is like we have a, a, a doctor who we work with here, well, in Australia, her name's Sonia Grover. She talks about endometriosis and adenomyosis like it's like the wear and tear of having periods like in the vast majority of cases it may just be that physiological which means normal for having periods but we've never been able to establish that because all we've been doing is this person's got pain let's look in their pelvis before establishing like what what degree of like potentially endometrial like cells are normal in the pelvis we've just said well that must be the pathology because that's something we can see in the pelvis and that must be the thing that's causing the pain. You know, I recently saw the film Below the Belt. My takeaway was one, it was really talking about the importance of addressing endometriosis, but based on the patients that were selected, I my takeaway was the earlier you get surgery and the younger it's caught, the younger you are when it's caught and as a result gets surgery, the better life you will have. And I don't, and they didn't like formally say that. And I don't think that was their intent. It really was about someone's got to do something about endometriosis based on the patients they picked. That was my takeaway. But then what's interesting is I am someone who had, I think the words are escaping me. Sta not state. It's not stage four. What are the state? It's not stages, grades, like grade three yeah. it is stage. Okay. Stages. So yeah. I had, I had, I think it's stage three or four and it took them forever to do the laparoscopic surgery, but I did not have severe pain. Granted, I had other symptoms that I didn't ever think to mention to anyone because they weren't a big deal. They weren't life-stopping. They didn't have a major, major impact. It was more annoyances. And so, you know, again, watching that movie, I was like dumbfounded because I felt guilty, even though it, I did have infertility so it's it's this is so complicated and i'm excited that i feel like today it's about turning the whole thing on its head right because it, there isn't a one-size-fits-all and i i do agree there needs to be way more understanding about it i think that it's about yeah. early intervention for pain and it's about sure. i think for many women who have who are you know who you might see the other side of the coin where it's like I've said I have pain, no one's done anything, no one's listened to me, no one's validated me, which should be able to be done without surgery, with mm. just someone listening and figuring out what are the other factors going on. Because perhaps those people who had surgery early felt validated early and felt that they had a plan early. And I think that can happen without early surgery because also there's evidence that the earlier you have surgery, the more surgeries you're going to have. And we know that surgeries often 70% of women who have surgeries might have an improvement in pain, but 50% will go on to have a recurrence of pain. And I think I'm sure there's many of your listeners out there, Georgie, who have had one, two, three, four, five, six, however many laparoscopies, and still may not feel that they're any better. And that's certainly what Peter and I tend to see a lot in our practice is, you know, women have had, they say they've got pain, they have a laparoscopy, six months later their pain comes back, they have another laparoscopy and they're just on this carousel of, you know, pain and looking for endo with none of the other underlying, you know, potential causes of pain being addressed and we'll get to those later, I'm sure. Um, and 
And so they just end up stuck in this kind of surgery as the only um, paradigm, um, which I think is really wrong. And I think you guys have both alluded to it as well, but I really feel that we shouldn't be talking about endometriosis, but we should be talking about pain and addressing pain because, you know, we see so many women who have terrible pain and no endometriosis. And for those women, you know, a focus on the lesions of endometriosis and excising the lesions of endometriosis leaves them feeling very disenfranchised because they don't have endo, so what's wrong with them? Is it all in their head? So on and so forth. And I think it's terrible for the women with endo as well because, you know, it's a very reductionist model that says if you have pain, it has to be endo. The only thing we can do for you is remove said endo and potentially put you on, you know, hormones that will switch off your cycle. And that's really all we can do. Um, Which usually and fails for a lot of those women. Like that's right. And for a lot See, of those that... women, they don't get better either because none of the other things that are contributing to their pain are being addressed as well. So I think it's moving away from like endo being the be all and end all for women's pain. And, you know, yes, for a subset of women, it may well be the cause and removing it may well be the solution. But for a huge proportion of women, it is, it, it is a small piece of the puzzle or it's irrelevant. Right. You know, yeah. the other thing I, I see also with the experts, um, especially the, the surgeons, is how most of those who do excise the endometriosis don't know how to catch it properly. There's only a handful of surgeons in the world who know how to properly get at every single one. And so, one, it's like, you know, I, I'm sure that that is true, but I think here it's the bigger thing of let's really address the pain in the proper way and understanding the root cause. And it does seem to be this debate of endo, do you take it out? Is the pain going to stop? And do you know how to really do the surgery correctly? Like that seems to be the spinning conversation. Yes, but the thing is, if it was so cut and dry that removing endometriosis fixed pain, that would be all the recommendations because there will be so much evidence, but there isn't. And, you know, even the, the latest Australian guidelines, it was like a big deal that came out on endometriosis. Their conclusions were really, um, you know, not, there weren't high-level evidence for doing surgery for endometriosis for pain. It wasn't high-level evidence for doing anything, really, because there isn't that much research, but it was all very a multidisciplinary approach with the patient's um, lifestyle and what their, their wishes are at the heart of it. The fact that those guidelines said that and weren't cut and dry about, you know, everyone needs endometriosis surgery, which they definitely didn't say, um, is is proof that even those people who do endometriosis surgery every single day for a living know that it's not, this isn't the only place. And we have the, like as Thea has said, she has trained as a subspecialist endometriosis surgeon and she's saying what she's saying as someone who absolutely knows how to remove all of the last bits of endometriosis and also we've worked with you know probably the best you know arguably the best endometriosis surgeon in Australia who's fantastic um, as a surgeon but who has also recognized that just doing surgery wasn't helpful for many of his patients with persistent pain and so then went on to develop um persistent pain clinics, which included allied health and all of the other things to tackle the other parts of pain that aren't um, fixed by surgery. And also Thea and I can attest to the fact that every single day we see women who have had those surgeries from the quote unquote, like best endometriosis excision surgeons. And it's nothing to do with the level of surgery, but it's just only addressing the tip of the iceberg and surgery can never, ever, ever fix chronic pain when we're not addressing the nervous system, the brain and pain um, pathways and inflammation at a whole body level. Like surgery will never be able to fix those things because it's so reductionist. And so it's insane to me that we continue to think that that is the right approach when in many other areas of chronic pain, such as things like fibromyalgia, back pain, where people used to have lots of back operations or knee surgeries, where they would do MRIs or imaging and find like an abnormality and find that, you know, oh, well, they must need surgery, that must be the cause of the pain. Um, but in many cases now we know through research that those findings that they could see on an imaging test, um, many people who don't have pain have those um, findings. 
probably in a very similar way to how we're seeing endometriosis right now with laparoscopy. Um, and they found that doing surgeries wasn't effective. And, but in, in, in uh, gynecology, we're really lagging behind um, that modern pain science. And I think in part it's because um, women have been ignored for such a long time that the most invasive thing that can possibly happen to them can validate their pain and it feeds into the Western medicine um, philosophy of mind-body is separate and only things that are um, anatomical that you can see, that you can remove, are valid and anything else is telling someone that they're crazy, which is, we know that's not true, especially for chronic pain. There's a, there's a mind-body environment continuum and it's insane that we're not looking at that. And so even if you have the best surgery, the best surgeon in the world, if you've got chronic pain, it's not going to fix it. Right. That's right. And I think if we, like, if we outline all the other things that might be contributing, you know, exactly as Peter says, like the nervous system response and the central pain amplification that goes on in patients with chronic pain, the pelvic floor muscle tension, the um, disordered gut health and gut microbiome, you know, the kind of the cross organ sensitization that happens where, you know, from pelvic pain, you can start to get bowel pain and bladder pain, not to mention, you know, mood disturbance and, you know, traumatic things that might have happened in a patient's life to lead them to a state of chronic pain. If you think about all of those other things that are really commonly going on in patients with chronic pelvic pain, you can clearly see that surgery to remove a tiny spot of endometriosis is very unlikely to, to solve the problem. So if we want to look at this pain more broadly, right, and if it's not just treating endo with this very isolated way of surgery or you know, medications that um, put you into to menopause. You know, let's talk more about this complexity of, of pain. I think, first of all, like, it's really important to remember that pain is a really personal experience, you know? Like, Peter and I could experience the same painful stimulus right now, and I may not have slept, or I might be feeling stressed, or, you know, work might not be going very well for me. And I could have an entirely different experience of that um, situation than Peter would. And okay. that's not saying that there's any difference in the damage that occurred to our bodies. That was the same. But the way that our nervous system interpreted that, um, that stimulus was really, really different. And so I think what we're learning in terms of, um, you know, advances in pain science is that pain itself is a symptom and doesn't necessarily signify underlying organ damage or underlying tissue injury. And there are so many things that can contribute to that sensitivity um, that our bodies may or may not have to pain. Um, and that can range from things like early life experiences, early childhood experiences, through to you know stressors and other things that might be going on for us at the moment. And so I think you know that's why it's really important and that's what we try and do with our patients is really kind of see them as a whole person and see well what other things might be going on here that might be contributing to the way that your nervous system is interpreting um, pain at this time. Yeah, and so also the part that um, processes pain in our brain is also... Uh, physical pain is also where we process emotional pain and so they've done really interesting functional MRI studies on um, emotional pain and physical pain and the, that part of the brain that lights up is very similar so um, you know we know that experience of chronic pain is definitely a nervous system thing it's like um, so I think Thea said you know pain what is pain pain is a a sub subjective experience of either actual tissue damage or um, or a feeling of danger and, and tissue damage. So often with chronic pain, there isn't tissue damage that's occurring ongoing, but our brain is sensing danger. It's in fear mode. And when we're fearing something or we're, we sense danger, our brain is always going to produce um, a pain signal because it's trying to protect us. And so there is heaps of evidence that, and there's more and more coming, um, in, like we, I think we're all hearing a lot more about how trauma can affect us, um, our whole body systems, and especially in, in the area of pain, it's, uh, there's more research coming out as well. 
But there is research that um, uh, early childhood um, developmental trauma, trauma or, or ongoing stress in adulthood where our autonomic nervous system, I guess we think about our nervous system in two ways. There's our autonomic nervous system, which is the bit part of our nervous system that's automatic, so it's like it sounds. It controls our breathing and our digestion and our blood pressure and our heart rate. Um, and it's like this old primitive part of our um, operating system. And then we have our, like our pain pathways. So like the, you know, idea, very simplistically, the idea of you putting your hand on a hot plate, it burns, it, there's a message to your brain that says there's tissue damage, take your hand off the hot plate produces a pain signal and that's protective, right? So acute pain is protective if there's something going on. So if you've got acute pain, obviously always get that attended to. But as we, people experience long-term or chronic pain, which is what we're talking about, which is pain that's persisting for almost, you know, most days for more than three months, women with um, endometriosis um, that we see often have pain not just with their periods but often all of the time when, they, when their pain becomes more severe and that's why there needs to be early intervention with pain um, which is incredibly important but that doesn't necessarily include surgery um, to prevent because when you start to have those pain messages all the time your body starts to learn that pain response. So your brain, those pain signals are amplified in the brain um, and you then start to reinforce um, that danger. So you might not move in a particular way and then that reinforces to your body, oh, because you might think that might bring on the pain and then your body, your brain's like, well, there definitely must be danger if my person is immobilizing because of, of that pain. And with the autonomic nervous system, the, um, the link between early childhood trauma or chronic stress, and when I say early childhood trauma, I'm not think, just thinking about, you know, sexual abuse or assault, but that is a very big area and a lot of the women that we see with severe pain have had histories of that. Um, or, you know, an accident or a, um, a death of a family member, or those, you know, when we think about trauma, we often think of being in a war or a really acute accident. But often these are things like dysfunction in the family, parents not being around, not being able to be your authentic self. There can be a lot of things that can contribute to that developmental trauma. And the evidence actually is that the earlier that happens, even if you can't remember it, um, actually, the more effect it has on your nervous system, which is the part of your body that you haven't consciously changed, but it detects danger at that time and then goes into a survival state. So it goes into either a fight or flight, like getting ready to, to flee or fight um, an ag aggressor, or goes into freeze, which is, you know, where it's so over overwhelming that you just kind of collapse. And both of those states are a dysregulated nervous system. So they're, they're taking you out of that nice, safe space in your nervous system where you can breathe into your belly, you feel safe, you can connect with people around you. It's a state where your nervous, where your um, digestive system works really well, um, your immune system is working optimally, inflammation is low, um, blood flow to your peripheries and all of that is really good. But if you're in those fight or flight or freeze states, your physiology changes. And I think this is kind of key for women to understand when we're talking about the nervous system and the brain. It's not a pain is in your head versus um, it's just in the pelvis. It's that your experiences and your nervous system state actually change your physiology, which changes your biology, which changes your physical state. So understanding that is like this incredible bridge to understanding how your body works, which then gives you power to change it. So if you're in a fight or flight state, for example, so and remembering that our bodies are amazing, but our like old operating system, so this autonomic nervous system and these three states of like our safety state, there's a theory called polyvagal theory um, by Dr. Stephen Porges, and so that safe state is referred to as the ventral vagal state which is where everything works beautifully um, the fight or flight is our um, and the other name is the parasympathetic nervous system the the fight or flight is our sympathetic nervous system so that's when our body detects danger makes adrenaline cortisol 
we feel might feel anxious, we might feel angry, we might um, feel irritable, and you know our digestion really shuts down. We might feel you know butterflies in our tummy, or sick, or bloated, or not hungry, and everyone can probably um, relate to that. Um, and then and then the freeze state is where that we have that shutdown. We might feel numb or dissociated or just not there, not connected to our bodies, totally not able to connect to other people. Both of those two states mean that we can't really feel joy, we can't be in the present moment, we can't feel compassion, but our physiology changes. So those stress hormones change our um, nervous system and they change our um, gut microbiome, they alter the gut microbiome, they alter which we know, which we think say for endometriosis and the immune dysfunction, one of the theories is that the... Um, the we and we know that there is some emerging evidence that women with endometriosis and who are with who have pain we can say um have an altered gut microbiome to women who don't and that might be potentially due to a whole host of factors stress and these stress states being one of them but also our you know diet chemicals in the environment etc um and the changes to that microbiota can change the mucus layer that lines the intestinal lining to make it less thick and protective and that single layer of cells in the intestine that usually protects what's inside the intestine from the other side of that which is where about 70 to 80 percent of our body's immune cells reside becomes compromised and those cells can become leaky and then we think that one of the theories with endo may be that um, a bacteria, part of a bacteria called lipopolysaccharide or LPS can leak, come through the intestinal wall and then interact with our immune system, then causing immune dysregulation and, potenti and potentiating possibly that extra inflammation and the immune dysregulation that occurs with, say, with endometriosis. So that's often, I think, why um, a lot of women who have endometriosis or pelvic pain also report IBS symptoms and bloating and digestive issues um, not because it's the endometriosis causing that but it's this overarching thing that's affecting our digestion our immune system and inflammation which for many people is our part of our nervous system response and so that's happening in that fight flight or freeze response and then also what can happen is in fight or flight sympathetic our muscles can get really really tense we're getting ready to flee or to fight we have that over time I always explain to my patients if they're like imagine their pelvic floors because no one ever thinks about their pelvic floor but if you imagine your pelvic floor going like this like squeezing your fists for ages it gets really sore and I get them to do that and then they're like yeah that really hurts and that's what's happening in their pelvic floor but they're not even aware of it um, and that is definitely a huge contributor to pain. So anyone who has endometriosis diagnosed or pelvic pain, I would say virtually 100% of them would have pelvic floor dysfunction to a degree. Um, and then in that freeze state, it's that, like we talked about before, you become detached, dissociated, you don't check in with your body, you don't move as much, you, and then that further reinforces that pain cycle. And the other thing to say is in that, those nervous system states, the dysregulated states, of bite, flat and freeze. Um, we might have gone through that that trauma years ago, but we've never been able to, re to recognize that that happened or to have coping skills to be able to return to that safe space. Or we have the ongoing stresses of our modern lives, even if you had, you can't identify any of those things like, you know, insane work schedules or for young girls, like insane expectations on them at school, um, all the extracurricular activities in the world, all the pressures to be, um, look a certain way and all of the things that our young girls have to go through, lack of sleep, technology, um, food and uh, chemicals in the environment, which aren't great for us and stress us as well. Um, so if we're continually stuck in those dysregulated nervous system states, that's, they're fearful states. We feel fear in those states. When we have fear, that perpetuates chronic pain too. Because if we think about pain and we think, oh my God, there's, that's, there's something terribly wrong and we're in that fear state, that will always perpetuate pain from a like um, top-down approach. So I think that's a huge contributor to pelvic pain and then... I think we've talked about a lot of the other things. And as you get stuck in that way of being, it gets harder and harder to return to that safe space and those grooves that our pain pathways have 
carved become like default and our body has learnt that um, that chronic pain and then where it's reinforced by our society who just says you know, you know the only thing that causes pain is endometriosis you definitely have to have an operation it's just a big incredibly horribly scary thing all the time and it will always get worse and you definitely need an operation and a society that doesn't um, create room or space for women to have a period or to rest during their period or to look after their bodies through the entirety of their cycle it's just like you're a woman who has a period in a cycle and if you don't like basically assimilate to this patriarchal culture where it's like 24 hours a day no you know consideration of our cycles or where we might need to rest a little bit more that's an extra stress on us women having no room to have a cycle in the world that we live in is so true i have so many patients who you know they dread their period because they know it's going to be painful they know that they're either going to have to take another day off work or they're going to have to push through and be in pain and pretend they're not in pain and if we think about that from a nervous system perspective you know all of that fear and worry and it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode and increases our pain sensitivity. And we talk to patients all the time about menstrual leave. You know, I say to patients, give yourself a day off. You are allowed to have one day off with your period where you do beautiful, nourishing things for your body. Do you know what I mean? You do some stretches, you do a yoga class, you go for a lovely walk somewhere green and you allow yourself the time and the space to really look after yourself and not worry about what the rest of the world thinks about that. And I think even that for some women is incredibly um, healing and really mm. takes away a lot of that fear around their period. And often they'll come back and say, oh, it was so much better. Like my period was actually way more manageable just because I didn't have to worry about how I would get through that, you know, that really painful day. Yeah, so I think that, that reframing the idea of pelvic pain always being endometriosis and endometriosis being this terribly frightening, scary, chronic disease. Because the other thing is, that's what people think at the moment. So it's like, okay, if you're 15 and you've been diagnosed because you've had your laparoscopy at 15 with no consideration of all of the other things, um, with a disease that then the doctor says, well, this is um, incurable chronic disease that will cause pain and infertility. When we know actually that's not true, we know that's not true because we know that a lot, like, yes, that can be the case for some people, but is it the endometriosis or is it all of these other things? Because we know that if you have endometriosis, you can have that, that very often is not your path at all. But to be told that from a very young age, um, that really cements I get I think that reinforces that fear um, which we know precipitates and and drives chronic pain so I think that we really 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 need to reframe how we think about pelvic pain with women and I would say you know if someone if you've got a young person who has pain absolutely don't go yep that's normal it's normal to take lots of days off school and it's normal to feel terrible and debilitated no absolutely not it's you need to get prompt um, treatment and investigation and discussion all about these kinds of things but I think what happens at the moment is it goes from oh you've got painful periods you either get the pill or a hormonal contraceptive or you get maybe a surgery and that's that's it you don't get the exploration of all the other things and I think Thea and I would both say okay these are all the things that can cause pain as well as the fact that when you have a period it is an inflammatory process so think about the fact that if you ask somebody who has your pain pathways dialed up to like 100 it's like if you're wearing a hearing aid and it's just set at a normal level and I'm talking with a normal voice, that's the normal sensations of our body, right? We can feel that. But if we felt every sensation of our bodies all the time, um, we that would be unsustainable for our lives. So our brain has to actually filter out a lot of sensations because sitting here, we're all getting sensations like I can feel a pain in my hip. I'm day one of my period today, so I can feel a little bit of cramping here. You might feel the clothes against your skin. But if we could feel every single sensation, like a lot of women actually do have when their pain pathways are like dialed up to 100, like, you know, like a really, um, it's, so it's not the sensation, it's the 
volume of the pain pathways and the amplification in the brain, that's the problem. So if you've got a normal inflammatory process that might cause a bit of um, discomfort in someone with ramped up pain pathways, it's going to be like debilitating. But is it the initial inflammatory thing? Do we need to completely knock that on its head? I don't think so. In the vast majority of cases, sometimes, you know, using hormonal things like the pill or the Mirena can help um, while someone's down-regulating their nervous system um, or if that's what they choose to do. But I don't think, like, that's the problem. We have to look at the nervous system. You know what I mean? Having a period is a normal part of having a woman's body. It is a normal and it is an inflammatory part. That's how it has to happen. And there's certainly lots of things in our environment in our bodies that can make that inflammation worse. Um, lack of sleep, poor diet, um, lack of movement, stress, um, chemicals in the environment. And we can certainly look at reducing those inflammatory things that can then help make periods better too. But to just go sledgehammer, let's just say your period is the problem, um, is not looking at the nuance of well, what else is in the environment that's causing you to have a more painful period and um, what's happening in your nervous system and environment that's causing your um, volume knobs on your sensations to be turned up to 100. I will say that I find two major entry points with women's health where women really are trying to find solutions and are struggling, the, the pain aspect, but also infertility. And, you know, there's, there's a big debate on whether or not, for example, you need laparoscopic surgery in order to get pregnant. And just hearing you talking, I can see why there is so much confusion, because I do think people put it into this bucket of you have endo, therefore, these are your three options rather than you have pain or you have infertility. Let's look at this, because like I have you know, four years struggling with infertility and it was always unexplained. And then a doctor did discover it was endometriosis. Um, I did have the surgery and I got pregnant, but it was still through IVF. But admittedly, I wonder, I also had the most amazing four months of my life before I ended up doing that IVF. So was that really why I got pregnant or was it the laparoscopy? Um, it's so complicated. And, you know, I guess one question I really have then also is, are we looking at this wrong? Like back to, is it really a cure for endometriosis that we're really looking for? Or is it better understanding what causes pain in women and endometriosis is simply a manifestation, but not something we cure. And maybe that's why there's been such a struggle to find an actual cure. I mean, is that really what this is about? I think endometriosis is like, yes, it can cause pain, um, but in the vast majority of cases, it's a red herring and it's a, and pain is a sign that uh, our, like every single person with chronic pelvic pain has some degree of nervous system dysregulation and um, definitely has um, upregulated pain pathways, pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, and then as a result of that, lowered Im like dysfunctional immunity and increased inflammation. And that's what we need to be looking at. Um, rather than endometriosis, which I think is, in most cases, a red herring and physiological, and in other cases, part of the picture and but not by any means the full picture because even when you have that best surgery and you know uh, even when you have the best surgery the best surgery alone generally doesn't fix the whole problem with chronic pain you need to have no. look at all of those other things no. and I've had someone recently who um, brought her daughter in with pain and she'd had you know eight surgeries hysterectomy for endometriosis and I said and how's your pain now still has pain um, and she's had none of those other things addressed. And, and I mean, we just see this all day, every day. Hmm. I think when we're talking about pain, you can basically confidently say that it's never just endo. You know, it's never just endo. There is always a multitude of other things going on. And if you don't address those other things, the patient won't get better. And I think that's borne out, you know, there's, the um, Cochrane collaboration is the um, 
the group that sort of summarises all the medical evidence on, on certain topics, and they came out with their statement um, that said basically there's, it's inconclusive whether surgery is actually beneficial for quality of life and pain in people with endo. So I think, you know, surgery can be beneficial for some people, but we really need to be thinking holistically and really thinking about all the other aspects of our patients' bodies and our patients' lives that are contributing to their, to their current you know, to their current pain. FemPower Health is pleased to partner with the upcoming FemTech and Consumer Innovation Summit. The summit is the latest deep dive event, part of the Women's Health Innovation Series, looking to tackle this growing sector of women's health, having had continental success in driving innovation, investment, research, and partnerships in traditional women's health care by bringing together critical stakeholders. Join us in New York on June 7th and 8th as we channel this success into the consumer sector of women's health. Visit www.femtechconsumerinnovation.com to view the superstar speaker lineup and enter code FEMPOWER15 for 15% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. So let's say I'm a woman where, you know, I have this really severe pain or, you know, a woman who's struggling with infertility who is on this panicked clock of the earlier I get pregnant, the more likelihood I have of better eggs. So that's probably more of the urgent time clock. But if you also have severe pain, that's like a different time clock of I want pain to go away. And, you know, because we are in this world, one where the mindset has always been get surgery, go on birth control or take these drugs that um, put you into menopause because of that's kind of systematically how things have been done, but also there's that time pressure. What should be done instead? Like if we were to take this step-by-step and I go in and I'm trying to figure out how to either get pregnant, get rid of my pain, both, um, what are the steps involved so that you feel like you're getting the right help and are convinced that the possible quick fixes may or may not be the right solution. So again, I'm not at all, and I think none of us are saying don't do any of those things. It's more of do it in the right situations. So how does one take the right steps to know that they're on the the right path? Because it is a scary unknown path that not everyone's really on the same page on. I think if you have pain and infertility, that's the situation where I would do a laparoscopy. And... um, if the, if the person understands, so I guess infertility defined as not falling pregnant for over a year. And if and you would say that uh, if you did a laparoscopy, if they had pain and um, infertility, it may not improve. It can diagnose endometriosis. It may not improve your pain. If it does, it might come back. And the evidence does show that removing endometriosis can improve um, spontaneous pregnancy rates. So it can double the rate of spontaneous conception. But it's also important to put that in context because... uh, So that is a situation where I definitely would do that with counselling with someone. Um, But important to put it in context because if you had been trying for, say, two years and your chances of falling pregnant per month are, like, go down to sort of 2% at that stage doubling your chance of pregnancy per month by doing lap surgery is going to make it like 4%. And it's important to let the person know that those are the stats you're talking about. In addition to offering surgery in that situation, I would be also looking at all the things we've talked about because surgery by itself is unlikely to fix the person's pain. So I would be doing pelvic floor physiotherapy, looking at stretches, um, and pelvic floor relaxation stuff. I would be using, uh, recommending an anti-inflammatory Mediterranean diet, which has got a lot of evidence for pain um, and good health in general. And fertility is just a reflection of our underlying health. I would usually recommend some um, supplementation of things that we know can help with pain and also decrease inflammation, mm-hmm. like um, magnesium, zinc, um, fish oil, or an omega three often curcumin, the active ingredient in turmeric. Sometimes I might use N-acetylcysteine or NAC, which is a um, a precursor to a a powerful antioxidant um, that can help 
both pain and um, fertility. And there might be obviously some other fertility things I might add and also obviously looking at the, the person's partner. And, and I'd obvious, before I did a surgery, I'd be doing a good quality tertiary ultrasound or MRI, um, usually if someone's sexually active, an ultrasound is adequate, um, but that is done by a, a sonographer or radio, um, you know, a person who's trained to look for deep endometriosis. So that is, that's what I would do in that situation. I think that the infertility bit is very different to the chronic pain bit. And I think it's yeah. important to say as well that endometriosis doesn't always equal infertility. There are many people who have endometriosis that, in fact, most people who have endometriosis who don't have infertility. Because also there's a whole lot of people who probably have endometriosis but we'll never know because we're never going to look inside their pelvises who are walking around with endometriosis lesions who don't have infertility. And there's so many people who have that and don't have an issue. So I think that just doing a laparoscopy at, with someone who's young because they have pain and with the fear-based thing of it's going to help their infertility when they don't even have infertility is nuts. I agree. I think the pain and fertility thing is very different um, to just pain on its own. Mm. Um, and certainly, yeah, as Peter said, the evidence is that, you know, laparoscopy for endo certainly can help, but excision of endo can help um, improve fertility rates. Um, but we, like, always always see patients who are really concerned because they're presenting with period pain or, or pelvic pain and they might be really young and they might be worried about endo and they might, you know, really their main concern is about their chances of conception. Um, and I always try and reassure those patients that, you know, doing surgery um, when they're really young just for a presumed, you know, um, concern around concern around fertility is is probably very premature because as Peter said the majority of people with endo will have no issues falling pregnant and I think you know when we think about endo it's important to think about the different um, types of endometriosis so um, there are two more severe types of endo so one is endometriomas which are big cysts of endometriosis that form on the ovary and that comprises probably about 15% of cases of endo then there's deep infiltrating endometriosis which is big nodules of endometriosis that form um, in various places in the pelvis and that's probably about 5% and they would be the two more severe types so accounting for 20% of all endo presentations. And then the remaining 80% is what we call superficial peritoneal disease. And so that's just a really thin layer of endometriosis cells coating some of the surfaces in the pelvis. And so you can have tiny little spots of that, or you can have sort of more widespread um, superficial endo. And I think that group, which is 80% of endo presentations, is, is the group that we probably are over-treating. So, you know, when we talk about endo and fertility, certainly, um, the impact on ovulation from in inflammation and the anatomical sort of um, changes that occur in the pelvis are much more likely to occur with those more severe types of endo um, and much less likely to occur with the milder forms of endo. Um, and the same goes for pain, although it's still not cut and dry, but, you know, the more severe your endo is, and certainly if you have that kind of... Um, stage stage four, stage three, four disease, the evidence is that you're more likely to have pain and surgery is more likely to be beneficial. But for that 80% who have mild superficial endo, the correlation with pain is really poor and, you know, the success rates of surgery are not really borne out in terms of improving patient's pain. And also, just to note, if you had a scan or something, an imaging test that showed that you had a deep nodule of endo but you had no symptoms, um, I see a lot of people who, who might have a scan for something else and they have find, you know, potentially a nodule in the bowel or whatever or in the rectovaginal space and they're told that they should have surgery, which is not uncomplicated. Like, it's it can be complicated surgery with risks like bowel injury and stoma and, um, you know, things like that. If they have no symptoms, I think it's or no pain with sex, no other pain. I think it's again really important that you tell women that that even that kind of endometriosis evidence shows that it's ninety percent not progressive, stays the same. 
So unless they have symptoms, then there's no need to be doing, you know, unless there are significant symptoms, even with that type of endo, there's no need to be doing surgery because the morbidity associated with surgery can actually be worse. And I've seen a lot of people who've had that situation and then they didn't have issues before and then they've had a whole lot of surgeries and things are much worse. So if you're doing all of these, um, taking into account, or I should say implementing all of these suggestions like the anti-inflammatory diet and really working on your mental health and all these different aspects, right? Can endo shrink on its own by doing that? Has anyone looked at that? Well, no one's looked at that, but we know that it can by doing nothing. There have only been a handful of like randomized control trials looking at endo and they're all a bit old now, but basically they randomized people to either having a laparoscopy and removing endo or having a pretend laparoscopy where they looked inside and saw endo but didn't do anything about it. And what they found in those patients was that 27 to 30% of those patients, when they did this, they did another laparoscopy six months later in the patients in whom they didn't excise endo. And in those patients where they had another look, 27, 30% of patients, their endo had gotten better and about another 30 to 40%, their endo had stayed completely the same. So I think, you know, we don't even really understand the natural history of the disease. And certainly there's no evidence that everybody who has endo, that their disease is going to get worse over time. Um, and I had a patient just the other day who has really, really severe endo. It's in her bowel and it, she had two big endometriomas, like cysts on the ovaries. And we did all the other stuff, all the anti-inflammatory stuff. Her pain is much better, which is the number one thing. But then I did another ultrasound and her, both her endometriomas have shrunk down significantly. And so this is a patient who's really keen to avoid surgery. And she feels now that she's you know, coping with her pain and that she's able to do that. So I think, yes, endo can certainly, the studies show that endo can get better on its own. And I don't think there are studies looking at you know, the, the anatomical changes that go along with all of these. Um, non-surgical treatments that we're talking about, but um, anecdotally, I think they definitely make a difference. Because they're invasive, and so no wow. one's got, like, you don't want to do that. Yeah. I think you need to go on symptoms and, if anything, imaging that's mm. getting better and better all the right. time. But, yeah. yeah, we know it can go away by itself, which is just the marker of our immune system, just cleaning up those um, those cells. So... Yeah. yeah, like I think the thing about it is I think people think about it like these lesions that are static or um, and that never go away and the only thing that changes it is surgery or that it's like this, um, you know, progressive like cancer. And I know endometriosis always gets like that analogy of it's like cancer, it goes out of control, whatever. But number one, it's not cancer. It isn't going to kill anyone. And two, it... Um, isn't there is no evidence like the evidence supports actually the contrary of the most endometriosis is either stable or regresses there isn't evidence that it's just getting worse and worse like this horrific thing in the pelvis which is I think what a lot of people think and if I was told that I had this condition and that was my understanding of it like you better believe that would drive my pain pathways to feel that pain, to feel a lot of fear, to get really mm. worried every single time I felt something and to think that the only thing I had to, could do to deal with it was to get it surgically removed. But then that's just not addressing any of the downstream stuff. And it's not true. It's like the, the way I think about it, like if you have a cut on your arm, you don't just think that that cut is just going to fester and fester and fester and fester and get worse you know that your body is going to use the immune system. It's going to, like, go there. It's going to clear, clear it up. The cut is going to um, heal. And that is what our bodies can do, we think, if given the right circumstances for our immune systems to be working well. And we know that endometriosis is an immune system dysfunction. And I think all of the other um, symptoms, like fatigue and gut symptoms and headaches and bloating and all of those things aren't as a result of the endometriosis itself but as, as or are as a result of the nervous system dysfunction the immune dysfunction and the increased inflammation that is likely to be causing the endometriosis does that make sense it makes absolute sense and honestly it it i think helps bring clarity to why when we're looking at 
can we find this cure for endo, why it seems to be mm. such a challenge. We're, we're, it's like we've got a, I think Lara Bryden, who I think you've had on this podcast, she, yes. when she did a talk on this um, at our summit last year, I think um, she had this picture and it was, it was like a, and mass, it was an elephant, but it was like these little scientists with um, magnifying glasses, like looking at this the elephant with their magnifying glass, looking at little bits of the elephant, completely missing the big picture. And that is what is happening yeah. with endometriosis. We're looking for this cure for endometriosis, where endometriosis and those symptoms are a sign of the dysfunction of our bodies in the environment mm. that they're in and the failure to recognise all of those mm. links and address it because it's really hard and that's why surgery won't work by itself for chronic pain uh every single diet in the world and every single supplement in the world and doing everything right isn't going to help if you are not addressing those pain pathways and that nervous system state that's right and it's just like the iceberg analogy you know like if we're constantly picking away at the tip of the iceberg and removing the endometriosis lesions but not addressing any of the other stuff going on underneath then we'll just keep picking away at the top and no one's going to feel any better. We've spoken so much about research, right? Um, but there's still such a lack of understanding um, and, and really looking at the woman as a whole rather than just focusing on endometriosis. In your, what do you think is the, the research gap? Like what should be looked at next to start to help people feel more convinced that this is really broader like well, what might be the next ideal research study there well there well i think there's two avenues that i think it's really important to look at one is does endo cause pain okay. or does superficial endo cause pain and then the other is you know what treatment modalities can we employ and really honing in on all of these other um, approaches that we've talked about to see how effective they are and Certainly in the realm of endometriosis, there are two big studies that are underway, one's in the UK and one's um, in somewhere in a Scandinavian country, I can't remember, Norway, I think. Um, but they're looking at patients who have mild superficial endo, does surgery actually do anything? Like, does it actually improve their pain? And so I think, um, you know, looking at the results of both studies will be really, really informative. And then, Peter, why don't you talk about, like, Vera and looking at I think I think looking at more of a um, that those mind body therapies and mm. evidence for for pain and taking into account the nervous system um, there'd be two things really um, I think addressing the chronic pain of endometriosis by looking at it through a lens of modern pain science number one so pain education um, uh, looking to downregulate fear, downregulate those pain pathways. Thea and I have both done a, a course in something called pain reprocessing therapy, which has shown ha has had really good results with a back pain study in Boulder and Colorado, um, and that's the pain the pain psychology center, I think. And Alan Gordon is the person who um, has come up with this framework for dealing with chronic pain that is looking at changing our, looking from the top down, but tuning into our body and changing the way we think about pain. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if, so we've talked about the, the research, I guess, what would be the one takeaway that you would have one for doctors and one for patients? I think for clinicians, you know, it's really just seeing our patients as a whole person and not just the pelvis and not just the uterus and ovaries. Um, but seeing our patient as a person in the world and, you know, considering it's the flip side of what Peter said, but considering their nervous system, their pelvic floor, their gut health, their stress levels, their, you know, their past history and really personalising your approach to each individual patient um, in a more varied and supportive way than just offering you know, the traditional laparoscopy plus hormones, both of which are, you know, incredibly important parts of our management strategies. But, you know, trying to think beyond that, at, you know, what other things are going to help our patients and, and the drivers of their pain. Thank you so much. Thank you for your dedication and for 
I would say standing up for these patients, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole way that things have been operating and this is certainly a a unique perspective, but I think a valid one that we all really need to take into account because this has been a really, you know, women's pain. It's, it's, um, it's complex and challenging. And I think you've offered some really great suggestions and insights and research. So thank you so much for your time and dedication. Thanks, Georgie. Thank you for tuning in to this discussion on the FemPower Health podcast. You can refer to the show notes for links to information that is referred to in this episode. And if you like this episode and found it timely and valuable, please take a moment to tell a friend or a colleague about FemPower Health. And right after this episode is over, please think of one person who might find this episode helpful and tell them about it. And if your friend is new to podcasting, please show them how to subscribe to our show. And another way to support FemPower Health Podcast is to leave a review where you listen to podcasts. And as a reminder, the information shared by FemPower Health is not medical advice, but for information purposes to enable you to have more effective conversations with your doctor. Always talk to your doctor before making health-related decisions. Additionally, the views expressed by the FemPower Health Podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. See you next week. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com. Drop us a message on social media or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.